Um, just a couple of things. I forgot my little paper. I'm going to pull it up right here. Are we recording? Are we good? Perfect. Um, so today, if you are familiar, it is what Sunday? <laughs> soup Sunday. How many soups we got? Anyone got a count on that? Seven, Seven I think, when you were there. It might be a cup of soup Sunday. Uh, it depends on how many we get. I say, hey, if there's a lot, we'll do bowls. If there's little, we'll do cups. It works, right? We're flexible, yes? Um, so stay for soup after our gathering today. We are going to just enjoy some of that. There's always some little dessert or something happening. Um, so please stay if you're able to. And it's also name tag Sunday for you to tell the person next to you, hey, Nelani, what soup are you getting? Okay, so say hello to maybe the person in next to you in line or maybe someone you don't know. That is the invitation today. Um, one thing that we do want to tell you, we do want to tell you very, very, uh, please save the dates for Holy Week. Uh, there is all the dates. On Thursday, we do this beautiful spread. If you know, you know. And if you haven't, where have you been? Because, come on, join us. It is a beautiful time where we have a beautiful spread and we celebrate the Last Supper. And it is an amazing thing to participate in together. Then on Friday, Saturday, and of course Sunday um, with a sunrise service and the service right here um, at 10 a.m. So please, please, please carve out the dates now. Someone wants to do something with you Thursday 28th. Are you busy? Yes, you are, because you're having dinner with me and everybody else in this room, okay? Um, so save those dates. And uh, the other thing that uh, we want you to save the date for is our next hike, which is Saturday, March 16th. And the first hike we had about a month ago was super popular and it went really well. And so we said, let's put one on the calendar right away. So we did. So can you go to breakfast with someone on Saturday, March 16th? No, you cannot. You have to be hiking with me. Because if I'm hiking, you're hiking. Okay? That's the deal. Um, and the other thing that I want to take just two quick minutes to mention to you here is that um, we are kind of in this uh, time where we are headed to the end of the fiscal year. We've had Fuzz up here. We've had Peter up here. We've had Chris up here. We are in this sort of campaign and a challenge to each of us. We are way behind on our budget. We are way behind. And the challenge to each of us in here is to give $25 more per week for the next 18 weeks. So guess what? You're not going to breakfast. You got a couple extra bucks. You're not going to dinner on Thursday night. You got a couple extra bucks, okay? So uh, it's, it's really awkward. You guys, can you say amen to that to talk about money in church? It's super awkward. I don't like it. But we have to, you guys, we carry forth ministries that run because of partnership together. So uh, we're not going to put this every week, but periodically we're going to show how many uh, weeks are left. So right now it's 18 weeks. And the challenge again is to give an extra $25 a week if you're able to. And so we would really like to see that. We don't see who gives what. We don't see. That's all in the finance department. But we are trusting that we are doing this together. Amen to that? 
Amen to that. All right, so now let's get on with it. I'm going to bring up Fuzz here in a second. Fuzz is preaching this morning, and he is, come on up, Fuzz. Let me just pray for you right here. Fuzz is uh, president and CEO of the organization Reasons to Believe, where they tie science and faith together. You will never hire me, Fuzz, because I would be a terrible employee. Um, but what an interesting, uh, you know, just job he has and just challenge that he has accepted to present to the world. Yes? That is just so um, wonderful. He is also serving on our elder board. So he is here today to bring us the message. Let's pray for Fuzz this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for Fuzz. Thank you for his life. Thank you for um, just everything he does. Lord, um, I pray now that you would be with his words, be with his message as he speaks to us. God, uh, thank you that he has put aside time and energy and space to do this this morning, God. Would you be with him as he speaks? In Jesus' name, we all say amen. amen. Thanks. Thank you, Mel. Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, you know, in a few weeks, uh, Amy and I are actually going to travel to Quincy, Illinois to visit our son and his family. And he has two beautiful twin girls and a, and a, a son who is about 10 years old now? Is Paxton 10? Nine, nine years old. And it's kind of fun because Paxton is at the age where he's discovering sports. And uh, much to my chagrin as a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan, he's becoming Jim, a St. Louis Cardinals fan. <laughs> it hurts, it hurts so bad. But I'm so glad that he's, he's discovering sports. But, and, and baseball's a wonderful, wonderful game. But every time that we travel to Quincy, we wound up uh, making our way to Hannibal, Missouri, one way or the other. Quincy, Illinois is right near the Missouri-Illinois-Iowa border. It's like a tri-state area. And if you drive 20 miles west, you're in the little town of Hannibal. Now, maybe some of you have heard of Hannibal. Uh, it's about 17,000 people. Uh, it's got a picture here of Hannibal. It's a, a river town uh, on the Mississippi River and just a quaint little community, but it's internationally known and people travel from all over the world to visit Hannibal, believe it or not, because it is the birthplace of Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain, right? And so it's a, it's a fun town that, does, that uh, overdoes it a little bit if, with Mark Twain because if you go there, you could spend the night in the Mark Twain Hotel. You could get up in the morning and go to the Mark Twain Diner, right? You could then go over to Mark Twain's birthplace and the museum, and after you tour, you could have lunch at the restaurant there. Then you could go downtown and shop at the Mark Twain Gallery and then go to the Mark Twain gift store. I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> I, because I've, I've been to Hannibal a few times. Then you could go to the Mark Twain Lighthouse. That night, you could take a, Mark, a, a, a river cruise on the Mark Twain Riverboat. The next morning, you could get up and explore the Mark Twain Cave Complex, right? So you get the idea. It's, it's, it's a bit overdone. But for me, it's kind of fun because uh, I like Mark Twain. He's one of my favorite writers. I remember as a little kid reading and rereading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and Mark Twain was also a social commentator and was known for his wit 
and for some of the, the statements that he would make, these, these one-liners that were uh, sometimes humorous, sometimes poignant, sometimes incisive, but always, always profound and provocative. So I thought it would be fun this morning just to look at a few of Mark Twain's uh, famous sayings. And these are not necessarily my favorite Mark Twain quotes. These are just ones that I happened upon was as I was preparing for the sermon that caught my eye. So let me just share a couple of these with you. The first one is really good for church. It says, uh, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushed it. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. All right, the next one's fun. Uh, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. <laughs> They even had fake news in Mark Twain's day. (laughs) Okay, the third one might be my favorite. It's not really quite appropriate for church, but I couldn't help myself. All right, here we go. Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. (laughs) I just think that's hysterical. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) One more. (laughs) A couple more, actually. Uh, This one is fun. The coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. (laughs) Now, I never understood this until about 20 years when we went to San Francisco in July for the first time. It was a really cold winter that week. (laughs) So anyway, and then uh, last is this one. It says that a classic is a book that people praise but don't read. (laughs) Right? Or or I've heard it another way too. A classic is a book that everybody talks about, but nobody reads. And in that spirit, I'd like to talk about a modern classic uh, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this is a book written by Neil Postman, who was a social critic in 1985 when it was published. And it's a really provocative book about the state of America. Uh, And... What he said in 1985 is even probably more true today, sadly speaking. But he was pointing out that prior to about the 1950s, 1940s, most of the way that people got information was in printed form. And there's something about that medium that allows you to convey information with its richness and in depth, that you're able to present ideas in a sophisticated way where there's subtlety and nuance, where people are able to develop rational arguments for the case that they're trying to make. But when we began to consume information and attached it to images, whether photographs or video, that the quality of that information changes. The the media makes the message, as is said. And Postman is pointing out that what has happened is that in America now, Everything is centered around entertainment, right? The, the information we get has to be coupled to, infor- to entertainment. It's got to be entertaining. If it isn't, we don't pay attention. And because it's all about entertainment, the message and the information is shallow. This is what Postman said. Uh, he said that when a population becomes distracted by trivia... When cultural life is defined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience, 
and their public business a vaudeville act, then the nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility, right? So this is a really, I think, a, a very insightful state, statement about the, the nature of what life is like here in the United States. And so Postman is pointing out that everything is entertaining. The news has to be entertaining. Politics have to be entertaining, right? We, we interrupt our programming on TV with commercials that have to be entertaining. We're not just being presented with products and services and giving a, a sales pitch. It's got to be entertaining, right? That education becomes entertaining. Even religion becomes entertainment. This is what he said. He said, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Wow. Right? That really forces you to think, doesn't it? Um, I posted this quote on social media. It's always a mistake to post things on social media, but I posted it on social media, and I got a number of comments. And most people were pointing out, well you know, salvation is a gift, right? That Jesus said, you know, my, my burden is, is like, my yoke is easy. And it's true, right? Salvation is a gift that we receive from God. It's not something that we can earn on our own merit. This is all true. But our salvation did cost Jesus an enormous price, right? So our salvation did cost something. It just doesn't cost us. But our discipleship, following Christ, costs everything, right? This is what Stephen pointed out last week when he talked about picking up our cross and following Jesus, right? Discipleship is hard. We are to pray for those and bless those who persecute us. We are to forgive people that harm us 70 times 7. We are to care for those people that are marginalized, love our neighbor as ourselves, care for the poor. We are to die to ourselves. That is hard. So I think Postman actually has a really powerful point. And this leads us to the message this morning, which is entitled, It's About Time to Pay Attention to Jesus. It's about time to pay attention to Jesus. And I love that the focus of Lent is centered around uh, recapturing our relationship with Jesus, deepening our relationship with Jesus, where we intentionally do things to put Jesus at the center of our focus and our attention during the time of Lent as we prepare ourselves for Holy Week. And that leads us to the, the passage this morning that I want to uh, look at, which is Luke 10, 38 through 40. And this is, I think, a fairly well-known passage of Scripture. Uh, it is about uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, who have a brother named Lazarus, who live in the town of Bethany. And this is what the passage says. Uh, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, 
Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. You know, this is, a, again, a short passage of Scripture, but it's interesting because in this story, Martha is doing what is expected of her, right? That, that at that time, when somebody came to visit, so here's Jesus and his disciples entering into their home, that you were to show hospitality above all things, Right, that, that there was no expense that was to be spared to make your guest feel welcome. And so Martha was doing what was expected. And, she, and in that time, it was the woman's duty to prepare the meal. And so that's what she was doing. She was preparing the meal. She was doing this as a way to serve Jesus, right? And that Mary, on the other hand, is... is essentially not only neglecting her responsibility as a host, but she is doing something that is violating the social norms because it was only the man who got to sit at the feet, who, to sit at the feet of the rabbi and to consume his teachings. And so Mary is not only neglecting her responsibility as a host, she is taking the place that is reserved for men and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, but she recognizes that there's something very special about Jesus and what he is teaching, and that she wants it. She desperately wants it. And so Jesus affirms what she has done, right? He affirms what she has done and very gently chides Martha as a result. And so the point here is that it's very easy to get distracted, right? And that distraction can keep us from focusing our attention on Jesus, right? And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore some things that can distract us, that keep us from Jesus. But instead of talking about things like entertainment that keeps us from Jesus, I'm going to talk about things that we would recognize as being good, maybe even essential to our faith, but that if we don't pay attention, those things can actually distract us from our relationship with Jesus and our focus on Jesus. And the four things that I'm going to take a look at this morning are misplaced worship, the evil one, life's cares and concern, and then ministry. So let's go ahead and take a look at misplaced worship. I'm going to start by looking at Romans 1.20 verses, uh, one, Romans 1.20-25, sorry. Uh, here, Paul is writing a letter to the Christians at Rome. And he is about to lay out a theological masterpiece that gives us an understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That Paul is going to interpret the Christ event for us and put it into context of Judaism, right? So this is a, an incredibly important letter that Paul writes, but he's introducing this letter by pointing out that God is about to bring judgment against those people who are wicked, right? And that he is, 
justified in bringing about this judgment because he has made himself known to all people at all times under all circumstances. So that's where we're going to pick up the letter. Uh, Paul writes, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. So Paul is here is describing the fact that God has made himself clearly known through the creation, through nature, and that that he exists and his attributes are undeniable, uh, that he has made himself plainly known. But he points out that the tendency of people oftentimes is not to direct their worship to God because they've seen God revealed in creation, What do they do? They misplace their worship and they begin to worship the revelation, not the one who made himself known. They worship the creation. So this is what he writes. He said, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, and animals, and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. So what Paul is describing here is what theologians refer to as general revelation. Again, this is a revelation that is generally available to all people at all times. And again, what Paul is pointing out here is that it's the tendency of human beings to misdirect their worship. And what Paul is doing is he's actually making reference to the second commandment. He's making reference here to the second commandment, right? Which is uh, in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We'll go ahead and just stop there. So Paul is is essentially pointing out that it's our nature as human beings in the midst of God's revelation to us to misdirect that worship that is due him. Now, as somebody who's involved in engaging uh, people who are science-minded with evidence for, for God's existence, I see this all the time, particularly among scientists. Now, you may not realize this, but probably about 30% of scientists will express belief in a personal God. So science is not this you know, place that's completely devoid of God. But there are many scientists who uh, reject God's existence altogether. But yet, interestingly enough, they stand in awe before the creation. They marvel at the creation. They are obsessed with learning everything they can about the creation. And, and as a result of that, they end up in worship, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Uh, I don't know if some of you may know my story or bits of my story, but I was an, an agnostic when I started graduate school to work on my PhD in biochemistry. 
I didn't know if God existed and I could honestly could have cared less. And it was studying biochemical systems. They're just incredibly elegant and sophisticated. There's an ingenuity to them. And it was also recognizing that the evolutionary models to explain how the very first life could come into existence were, was simply unworkable. That convinced me there had to be a creator and that opened me up to responding eventually to the gospel. Now, that was about 40 years ago. And I was a snot-nosed graduate student who was full of himself and probably didn't know as much about biochemistry as I thought I did and probably knew less about how science worked than I thought I did. Uh, but it turns out that over the last 40 years, the more that I've worked on this question and revisited it over and over and over again, the more convinced that my conclusion as a graduate student was indeed scientifically robust. It was scientifically sound. But it's interesting to me because at that time, which was the mid-1980s, there were two books that everybody in the sciences were talking about. These were popular books targeting a, a popular audience, but they were the talk of the town, and they, both books were written by Francis Crick. Now, maybe some of you know who Francis Crick was. Uh, Francis Crick won the Nobel Prize along with Jim Watson and Maurice Wilkins for discovering the structure of DNA. And in fact, uh, there was a, a point where he said, uh, of all the Nobel Prizes, mine is the Nobel Prize, right? He was a very arrogant man. Um, he was an atheist and wrote a book called What Mad Pursuit, which is an autobiographical account of the discovery of DNA. And he concludes the book by saying this, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Think about that in light of Romans 1, 20 through 25. If something appears to be designed, it's quite possible it has been designed, right? And yet what he's arguing is that even though it looks designed, we suppress that and we are going to insist upon a strictly materialistic explanation devoid of God, right? Uh, Crick are also, in his book, uh, Life Itself, uh, which is a book on the origin of life question, said this, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to almost be a miracle, Right? And yet, he, he embraced atheism. But Crick was a, consumed with studying the world around us and reveled in it. So the point here is that, again, it's very easy for us to misplace our worship. It's something that is a tendency to do. Now, lest you think that I'm picking on scientists and non-believers there's something that we need to be careful about as Christians. I know very few Christians who worship the creation and not the creator. But we all, when it comes to revelation, there's another type of revelation that theologians discuss, which is called special revelation. This is revelation that God, uh, where God reveals himself to specific people at specific times under specific sets of circumstances. And those people have recorded those 
experiences with God, and we now have it as what is represented by the Old and the New Testament. So the Bible is God's special revelation to us, right? By reading the Bible, we can discover who God is, what his attributes are, what his will is for us, and how we can have a restored relationship with him, how we can be redeemed people, and what is the basis for our hope. So as Protestants that are evangelicals, we have an incredibly high view of Scripture, right? That, that Scripture is, a, as, is of the highest authority in our lives as Christians, and it should be. And in fact, this is the basis for an idea called sola scriptura, right? Which is the idea that when it comes to matters of faith and salvation, Scripture is the supreme and highest authority. It is the sole authority. Now, this, again, is something that I embrace wholeheartedly, but it's very easy. Again, remember this idea that we have a tendency to misplace our worship. It's very easy to take the idea of sola scriptura and go to an extreme. And this extreme is a view called biblicism. Uh, And this is the idea that Uh, There really is no value in any information apart from the Bible. It downplays general revelation. It regards the Bible as the exclusive source of reliable knowledge on science and philosophy. It views the ancient confessions and the creeds of the church with suspicion and tends to construct a personal belief system based on your reading of Scripture and often overlooks the historical and cultural context of Scripture. This is something that is very easy to slip into, whether we, and we we need to be vigilant that we don't do that. But this idea of biblicism can even go one step further and can lead to something called bibliolatry. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but the, the idea here is that what people end up doing is placing Scripture on the same level as God. And they end up becoming focused on worshiping the Bible, not using the Bible as a means to actually draw closer to God, right? And so this, it become, the Bible becomes misused in this circumstance. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus admonished the Pharisees when he said, you've studied the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the point that I'm making here, bit of a heavy point, is this. It's not that we shouldn't treat scripture with high regard, that we shouldn't invest time reading scripture. It's just that we want to be cautious about misplacing our worship. Are we really, are we actually worshiping scripture instead of using scripture as a way for us to draw closer to God and giving the appropriate worship to God, right? So that's the point. That's the point. Okay, uh, and I'm I'm gonna uh, leave this section with a quote from John Calvin who said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And so the question is, what, is, what are your idols? And are your idols keeping you from God?
Okay, the next one is the evil one, right? And um, I've got a, a friend that I work with at Reasons to Believe named Ken Samples. He's a philosopher and a theologian, and I'm going to paraphrase Ken. But he, he said that, I've heard him say on many occasions, that, that Christians can make two mistakes when it comes to the devil. You can either become so obsessed with the devil that everything that goes bad you attribute to Satan, or you can give no regard to the devil at all. You just completely ignore him altogether. And neither one is a healthy position. We want to be aware of that Satan exists and that he works in the world and that his goal is to distract us from Jesus. It's to, it's to tempt us in, in a way that pulls us from Jesus. But oftentimes that temptation is in the form of something that is really good but is just distorted and twisted by Satan to distract us. So let's go to, to Genesis 3. Uh, where we see the story of Eve's temptation. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here, you know, Adam and Eve were in, in this incredibly beautiful garden. They could eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, Right? And yet there's this one tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And Satan tempts Eve which that, that, from, with that which is good, distorting what God says so that she would uh, fall victim to Satan's deception. Now, uh, just for, for fun, a little sidebar. One of the, the objections I often hear from skeptics uh, about the Genesis 1 through 11 creation account uh, and the idea that this is all some kind of Hebrew mythology, it's not to really be taken seriously, is the idea that there is a talking snake that appears in Genesis 3. It's like, that's ridiculous, right? This clearly must be mythical. And it, it's interesting because there, the scripture isn't actually teaching that there was a talking snake, and, and uh, a theologian by the name of Michael Heiser, uh, Michael Heisner, sorry, uh, points out that in the original Hebrew, the word that's translated as snake can function as a noun, an adjective, and a verb. And when it's used as a noun, it re refers to a snake or a serpent. But when it's used as a verb, it's used to refer to someone who's involved in divination. It's the act of divination, Right? which scripture prohibits. And when it's used as an adjective, it means shiny. And so when you take that word picture together, what's being communicated here isn't a talking snake. It's Satan that is appearing in serpentine form, right? So this is an encounter with Satan. And of course, you know, we also are familiar in, 
in the Gospels with the temptation of Christ, right? That Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting uh, for 40 days. And then as he's preparing now for his ministry, Satan comes to him and tempts him three times by presenting a distorted view of different scriptural passages. And Jesus' response, unlike that of Eve, was to actually provide the proper understanding of what scripture teaches. But again, Satan is there to tempt us and distract us. And many times that temptation is involving good things that have just been distorted or twisted a little bit. And so as uh, Peter, who writes to the church at Asia Minor, that we are to be alert in sober mind, that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Or James writes, submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. So the point here is that we just need to be aware that there is a, a tempter. There is an evil one and that we just need to be sober-minded about it. We don't need to get freaked out about it, but we just need to be sober-minded. And that the way in which we combat the devil is to submit ourselves to God, to draw close to God, right? To resist the devil and that he will flee from us. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Life's cares and concerns. And, and this is something that I think all of us can immediately see how this can be a distraction, right? In keeping our attention away from God. You know, life is hard, even under the best of circumstances, right? Uh, we, we all have very busy lives where there's all kinds of obligations that we have. We, we work too many hours just to try to put food on our tables and to care for our families. Uh, we uh, are involved in different activities uh, where we are, you know, trying to take care of sick parents or uh, take care of our kids' needs, right? The list goes on and on and on and on. You know, and it's so easy. These are all necessary things. These are all good things to be focused on, but it's very easy to get caught up in these things and as a result become distracted. Uh, if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, we see the parable of the sower, right? And here Jesus expresses this concern where he said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time when trouble or persecution become, sorry, comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And so again, this is something that can be a distraction from us. And, and the, the solution to that is found in Matthew 6, where as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet 
Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, he will not much more clothe you, you of little faith. So the point here is that when we are distracted by the cares and the concerns of the world, our response isn't to become all consumed by them and again, distracted from God. Our response should be to draw closer to God and to remind ourselves that it's God who is the provider, God who cares for us. And that care that God has for each of us is beyond imagination because we are made in his image. We are made to be in a relationship with him. And then finally, uh, the last point is ministry. Uh, You know, here we see in Luke 10, again, Martha serving the Lord, right? She's doing what is respected. She's doing what's required. She's doing what's needed, right? She's serving the Lord, but in her service, she forgets that Jesus is literally in her house and that she should be spending her time in the presence of the Lord. And so the point here is that ministry in our service to others can actually be a distraction, keeping us from God. Now, this is something that I need to be talking to myself in the mirror about, all right? And as Amy is nodding her head and smiling, <laughs> because she knows, because I am a type double-A personality, and I am super responsible, and I'm working at a job where I'm effectively doing two full-time jobs, and, and everything that I'm doing is good, It's impacting people's lives. It's serving the Lord. Uh, It is, what I'm doing is good, right? It's ministry, it's serving God. I'm doing it, you know, for the sake of the gospel. And yet I can be so involved in what I'm doing, which is good, that I can, I have a tendency at times to neglect my relationship with Christ. And so it's, I'm not saying this morning don't read the Bible. Don't spend time in nature as a, as a way to, to draw close to God. I'm not saying uh, that you, you, you shouldn't be concerned about life and what is required of you. I'm not saying you shouldn't serve in ministry. What I'm saying is don't let these things become distractions that keep you from Christ. That's what I'm saying. And um, in light of that, I'm going to close by looking at Psalm 51 very quickly, 16 and 17, where David writes, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. That's what God requires of us. And again, uh, there are good things that are are part of our faith, that should be an integral part of our faith, but let's not neglect to pay attention to Jesus. You know, we're gonna go into a time of communion, and as we do that, I wanna 
remind you of a, a story that's in the Gospel of John, John 10. It's about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, right? That Lazarus is sick and Martha, not Mary, but Martha goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to come back and heal him. And Jesus doesn't. And so Martha goes home and Lazarus dies. Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died and now he goes back to Bethany and who is it that comes out to greet him, to greet Jesus? It's not Mary, it's Martha. And what Jesus says to Martha is utterly profound because she said, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And he said, it's good for you that he's, he, he died. And he said, I am the resurrection. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Right? And she said, yes. That was an incredible disclosure of who Jesus is, that he is the resurrection. So it, Martha must have learned something, right, from that experience with Jesus because it was, it was Martha that ran to Jesus. And so as we go into this, this time of communion, what we are going to do is spend a time recognizing as we take the communion elements that indeed Jesus is the resurrection, right? That it's through Jesus' death on the cross that our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that when we take the bread, it's a reminder that this is the body of Christ that was broken for us, that, that we can be healed, that when we take the cup, we're reminded that this is the blood of Christ that was poured out, that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that when we take communion together as a family, I believe that there's a special grace that God ministers to us through taking of communion. But it's also a way for us to proclaim the death of Christ and the hope that we have in the fact that he is the resurrection. And let us use this time to draw closer to God and to pay attention to Christ. And so what we're going to do is after we serve communion, that I would like for you to take those elements, go and back to your chair, and then on your own, take them. We're not gonna take them together, but on your own, after a time of reflection and focused attention on Christ, uh, go ahead and take the elements on your own. So.